what does it mean to be an expositor? What is expository preaching? Well, I found in my experience, people tend to ask me what I do, and I'll say, oh, I go to seminary, and they'll say, oh, yeah, where do you go? I'll say, I go, I go to the expositor seminary, and they kind of give me a blank look. They say, okay, you want to be a preacher? So they kind of have no idea what I'm talking about. So I, I found it, oftentimes, I guess most people that I've talked to, they don't, they don't actually know what that word means to exposit or uh, to be an expositor or to do exposition or expository preaching. So I want to, first of all, just kind of look at that because we hear it all the time. I want to break down what it means to be an expositor. So true preaching, says John Piper, is not the opinions of a mere man. It is the faithful exposition of God's word. So in a phrase, preaching is expository exaltation. Richard Mayhew, he gives us five elements of expository preaching. He says, number one, the message finds its sole source in Scripture. Number two, the message is extracted from Scripture through careful exegesis or through careful study. And number three, the message preparation correctly interprets Scripture in its normal sense and in its context. Number four, the message clearly explains the original God-intended meaning of Scripture. And finally, the message applies the scriptural meaning today. So then what does that look like? Well, generally it's sequential. So we kind of see it here at our church. It's teaching through books. And typically it's uh, one paragraph or more, unless you're in our community group on Friday nights, and we did one word recently. So. <laughs> but in general, it's a few verses. Um, so if you look at our church, Pastor Shane is going through Acts, books of Acts, First uh, Corinthians. We have other pastors going through Titus, Colossians, Gospel of John. So just all sorts of books that people are teaching through. And of course, we all know of the, the example of John MacArthur, who has preached through the entire New Testament. It only took him over 40 years. So not too bad. <laughs> and that really is um, what we do here. And that, that's what this seminary is training us to do, to exposit the word, to, to teach through it. So a, a recap. Um, basically, an expositor is attempting to teach the author's intent. He lets the passage make the points. And he lets the passage pick the topics. So our goal is we just want to teach this word as thoroughly as possible. And let it say what it's going to say. And here are a few benefits. First of all, the pastor can't avoid difficult texts. So there are some, believe it or not, there are some texts in the Bible that are kind of hard to understand. Um, like uh, Sons of God in uh, Genesis 6 and the Nephilim. What, what is that talking about? Well, it's real easy just to never preach on it. But if you're preaching through the book of Genesis, you will get to chapter 6. And you're going to have to preach it, and you're going to have to study it, and come to a conclusion, and preach it to the congregation. So, so that's one benefit. You know, it makes you a deal, deal with these difficult texts. Second, it forces the pastor to teach 
controversial texts. So maybe in our culture, there are texts, are there, there are issues that are controversial. Like today, what if a pastor gets to a text where it's talking about the roles in marriage? That could offend people. It's just saying what the Bible says. Or maybe it's the issue of homosexuality or abortion. But when a pastor is just teaching through books, these topics come up and he has to teach them. So it kind of forces the pastor to do that. Third, a pastor can't avoid controversial doctrines. So maybe there's a doctrine that a pastor knows if someone, if they hear his opinion, they may not like it and they may leave the church. So pastors can conveniently just not teach on that. And, uh, and I know in a previous experience at a church I was at, the church was kind of divided on a doctrine, and half the church believed one thing and the other half believed the other because the pastor, he just never said anything about it. So just another benefit of teaching through books. Uh, number five, it forces the pastor to teach within the context. I think that's huge. You know, nowadays, you hear so many sermons where it's just random verses thrown in everywhere to make points. But when you're teaching through a text, you're constantly seeing the context of the passage. So it helps to make the text or the preaching more accurate. And then some people say, well, I want to hear topics. Now, I want it to be practical. Well, someone who's actually teaching through a book of the Bible, they're going to go through many topics. So just think about 1 Corinthians. We've talked about marriage, singleness, the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts. We're going to be talking about the resurrection. I mean, that's just one book. There's many topics that a pastor would go through just teaching through just one book. And then, as Jane was saying earlier, the uh, expository preaching, it teaches the congregation how to study the Bible, or it should, because as a pastor is exposing the Word, they should be seeing principles that they can apply when they read the Bible for themselves. So the question then is, why are we so thorough? Why are we so concerned with being so accurate to teach this book without any error? And why are we trying to teach the intent of the author. What, what's the reason for that? And that's what we're going to look at tonight. So we're going to look at the Word of God. We're going to look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. And this is going to kind of tell us why we put so much effort into teaching men to handle the Word and to te- teach it accurately and thoroughly. So I will read the text for us, and then we'll break it down and see what it has to say. Verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's pray before we get into this text. Lord, we thank you again that we can come to your word, that we can hear what it has to say to us. Help us, Lord, to just take this teaching seriously and to apply it to our lives. Thank you again for your word. Peace name. Amen. So two reasons to preach the word. Number one, because of its divine origin. So we are to preach the word by implication to study and to learn and to and to listen to preaching, because of its divine origin. So it starts out saying that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So this term, inspiration, 
is actually, in the Greek, it's a compound word, and it's God breathe. So some of you probably have that in your text as a translation. And it's kind of interesting because it's actually a, uh, a word that is unique only to the New Testament. It's kind of like Paul took two words and he, he made up his own word just to make it fit what he was trying to say about Scripture. But the idea is that God breathed the word. And if you think about our modern view of inspiration, it's quite different because it, the way we kind of say it, it's more subjective. Like when something is inspiring, it's, it's how it feels to me. Like you could say, man, that song really inspired me. And, and then you can ask your friend, what do you think of the song? And they could say, oh, I hated that song. It's terrible, you know. So it's, but for a subjective personal experience, something can be very inspiring. And I actually, when I was looking up that, this term online, there was a website that had inspired quotes. So these are really good quotes out there that are, I guess, really inspiring and good. And, uh, and people talk about, often about music. The musician was inspiring. And that is not what's going on here. Um, this is an objective, God-breed word. Okay? It's, there's no subjectiveness to it. It's coming out of God's mouth. It, it kind of reminds us of a creation when God breathed life into Adam and when he spoke things into existence. So the word is inspired in the sense that it's God-breathed. It's from God. I remember recently, or not recently, I guess, beginning of seminary, I, I just suddenly thought of a, the word of God. And I uh, just hit me like, oh, wait, that's God's word. You know, it's from the God of the universe. And I, I just never thought about it. I just got so used to just saying, yeah, God's word, you know, Bible. And suddenly it hit me, oh, this is actually from the God who made everything, God of the universe. So it's breathed out it's by God, and it's to us. God's written his word to us. And... It is not dictating. So it's not dictation. It's not like the, the authors when they were writing the Bible. They, Paul said, hold on, I need to go you know, type up or write up a message from God. I'll be right back. And so he went into his office and wrote down some words from God as he was listening to God tell him. It's, it's, it's cool how the Bible, it, you have when you read it, these authors who have their own personalities. They have their own styles. Um, some of them are better at Greek than others. I mean, some aren't very good, like John, which is why us seminarians really like John, because it's easier. We feel better when we translate. Like, yeah, but So there's levels of uh, skill in, in Greek and Hebrew. And these guys, they just have their own personalities. They have their own issues. Paul talks about his friends. He has these closing notes. But somehow, that is all God's word. And the way you cannot kind of understand it is Second Peter to one where it talks about how the prophecy of Scripture, it was from men as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that term carried along is actually used in the book of Acts when the boat is being carried along by the wind. And so, so the boat was like its own distinct boat, but it was taken by the wind to the destination. And that's kind of how you can view how the Scripture was written. These guys, they had their own personalities. They're... They had their struggles, their issues, but they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So as we, when we say that Scripture is breathed by God, it is God's Word. But then somehow it is also the men who wrote it, they were thinking their own thoughts. They, they weren't like robots just taking the words and spitting it out. It, 
was part of their own experience. So the fact then that the word of God, that it is God's word, it means that it is authoritative. It is clear. It is sufficient. It is inerrant. It gives us everything we need for life and godliness. It says that in Second Peter 1.1. It says, through the knowledge of Christ, we have everything we need. And that all comes through God's word. So the word of God is breathed by God, is inspired. And it also says all scripture in verse 16. So it doesn't say some, it doesn't say the New Testament or all scripture except Leviticus or except Numbers. It says all scripture. And in the Greek, that word means all. So it's a little Greek knowledge there. <laughs> Not just the red letters of Jesus. And that, unfortunately, that is a kind of a common theme that people don't like today. That all of the scripture is breathed by God. I mean, people generally like the New Testament, Jesus, and they don't like Revelation, just Jesus and the Gospels. And I actually had an opportunity of talking with a lady a few weeks ago at a funeral. And she told me that she believed in the Bible. She believed in Jesus, but she didn't believe in all the scriptures, what she said. She believed in Jesus of the New Testament. And, and I said, well, why not? I mean, the Bible says all scripture is breathed by God. And she said, well, there, there's a lot in the Old Testament I don't like. I mean, God's pretty mean, and he's violent and kills people. And we know that the scriptures have been corrupted over time. And there are a lot of books that weren't, weren't even in the Bible. And so... Little did she know I had answers for her. And so I said, okay, um, have you read Revelation before? And uh, she hadn't read it. And I said, that, that's a pretty violent book where God is pouring out his wrath on all of the world. And uh, in the end, he sends everyone to hell. And that's Jesus, uh, the lion and the lamb. And uh, she didn't really have much to say. And then, then I said, and as far as like the, the scriptures being corrupted, uh, I said two things. So. Write this down. When and where, is what I said. When and where. And she didn't have an answer. And, and I just said, it's, it's, I find it very hard to believe that 5,000 plus copies scattered throughout the ancient world were somehow all corrupted, and no one knows. There's no evidence of it. And she said, well, I mean, yeah, but there are extra books added. And then I said, well, have you ever read any of those extra books? And she hadn't read them. And I said, well, there are some really crazy things, like, Jesus, as a kid, kills people when he's upset with them. And this huge cross comes out of the tomb and just massive and floats up into the heavens. So, and they're, they're full of false prophecies and their authors are not connected with Christ. And so I kind of gave some of these evidences, but in the end, she, she really didn't seem to care what I was saying. It seemed like she was trying to <laughs> get out of there. Um, so <laughs> I tried. And uh and she said, well, that's your opinion. And I said, yeah, and I'll pray for you. <laughs> and that's about it. Like, yeah, it is. <laughs> so all that to say, there, there are, unfortunately, people today who, who do not embrace the fact that all Scripture is breathed by God. All of it. Genesis to Revelation. It's all his word. And going back to expository preaching, that's a great benefit of exposition, is that we are teaching everything, hopefully, you know, going through the Old Testament, book by book, going through the New, teaching all of it, because it's all from God. 
And another thing I told her, too. I said, well, why does Jesus quote the Old Testament so much? And she didn't know that. But that is very interesting. If you do look at the quotes, most of the Old Testament books are quoted in the New Testament. And Jesus quotes a ton of them. I mean, just about all of them. And then in the Old Testament, they, you have like the writings, the prophets, and the, the law. You have these three genres, and they're all quoted. So definitely the, the New Testament writers had a very high view of the Old Testament because it's all breathed by God. Right? So that's the first re, um, reason that we need to study the Bible. It's because of its divine origin. It's from God. It's inspired by him. It's breathed by him. And that's verse 16. Next reason to preach the word is because of its divine work. Basically, before what the Bible um, is and now what it does, its work. And this comes from um, the rest of the passage. It's, it's inspiration, it is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction and in righteousness. So, first of all, we just see that it's profitable. It, it has good things. It's, it's beneficial. It, it kind of reminds us of Psalm 19 where he says it's, it's sweeter than honey. It's, it's more valuable than gold. It's the most precious thing that we can possibly have, the word of God. And, it, and so it's profitable for, for teaching. So teaching here, it actually says in this translation, it says doctrine. I think the ESV says teaching. And I think that doctrine is probably a better translation because it's the idea of this entire um, body of knowledge that we get from the Scripture. As some, someone has once said, doctrine is life. I mean, how we, what we believe, that will impact how we live. If we have bad doctrine, it's going to be bad behavior. So if you think about our biblical, biblical counseling conference. We have many uh, doctrines that we learn of how to live everyday life. I mean, they teach us how or what we should do when we're angry. You know, what does the Bible say about anger? Or if we're worried, what does the Bible say? It gives us doctrine of how to live. Or what about trials, anxiety? The Bible is full of teaching and doctrine that should shape our lives. And that's why it's so profitable um, I was at a previous church, and a friend of my sister wanted to counsel with the church. And one of the head counseling guys asked me, do you think um, she's able to counsel? And I said, I, I don't know. I mean, I said, why don't you just ask her what the Bible says about every single issue you've ever counseled, and if she knows what to do, let her counsel. And uh, he said, huh, okay, yeah, sounds pretty good. So I think that's the thing. If, if we know what the Scripture says we know it's doctrine, it's going to help us in life. It's going to help us with every single issue that we will face. And obviously, all of that for the purpose of glorifying God. That's really why we want to know the Word, so we can know God. So it is profitable for teaching. And as I said, if you do not have good doctrine, it will impact the way you live. People who are not understanding God's sovereignty, it's hard for them. When difficulties come, when they don't understand that God is providentially working all things out for the good of those who love him, it's really hard when difficulties come. And so, Scripture, though, when you have that, that foundation and that doctrine, that just helps 
And that is of great profit. Not only that, but it's profitable for reproof or rebuking. Or I like to translate it, getting on to people. My paraphrase, actually. So as we read the scripture, as we preach the scripture, it should get on to people. They should realize that they're doing things that are sinful. It should bring conviction into our hearts. Uh, Hebrews 4 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So an example, let's say you're, you're having a conversation with a charismatic and you want to defeat all their arguments. So you go to 1 Corinthians 12 and you're studying about tongues and prophecy and you're reading this section and you're seeing all these good points you can use. And then you get to chapter 13 and it says love is patient, love is kind. And you start to realize, wait a minute, I'm not being very kind right now in my attempt to win this argument. It says love is not irritable, it does not insist on its own way. And so suddenly the Bible starts to pierce you. You start to see what's in your heart. And that's what the scripture does. It gets on to you. And hopefully it does. And hopefully when we read, we're looking at ourselves and not others. We're seeing, you know, how can this impact me? So it makes us, it uh, gives us this body of doctrine. It tells us how to live in a positive way. But then negatively, it rebukes us. It, it convicts us. And the spirit of God, it, you, he uses the word to convict us. But it also corrects us, which is the next part. So it brings us correction. And that term, it kind of has the idea of making something straight again. Um, it, would, it was used in secular Greek to, to help pick people up when they, were, when they fell down. And so it, it doesn't only just tell us what not to do, basically. It tells us what to do. So it's kind of like the, uh, the put off, put on that you see in the Bible. So don't, don't not only put off stealing, but put on giving. So stop stealing, get a job, and help others in need. And it helps you. So say if you're self, selfish, Scripture will help you to be selfless. I was in um, college. I used to do um, art, and I had a ceramics class where you spin a wheel, make these pots. And there was this girl who had a, a pot with a little, kind of a little dent in it, and she was struggling to get it, get it right. And this guy in the class, who was really good, he said, here, let me take it. And he just crunched it up, made it into a ball, spun it in like five seconds later. It was like this perfect pot. And uh, it looked great. And the, the girl was really upset because her pot was broken. And it was obvious that someone else did it. But I think it's kind of like a good picture of what the Word of God does. It, it takes something that is messed up, and it fixes it, and it, it makes it into something beautiful. And, and that's what the Word does for us. It corrects us. It corrects the way we think. It helps us to see what we are to do, what we are to put on. And then also, it trains us in righteousness. So it's a similar idea here to training a child. Actually, the term has that word child in it, in the root of it. And we see that in uh, Hebrews 12. Turn there for me to Hebrews 12. We'll look at it real quick.
verse 3 says, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it is peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So you have here a good illustration of, of God's discipline. This same kind of term is used back in Second Timothy. God, he trains us, he disciplines us like a son. And he uses the word of God to do that. And it's, if you think about a trainer, um, when you're, say you're in the gym and you have a personal trainer, the trainer will help you. He'll give you, he'll give you tips. He'll give you practical steps of how to be better, how to be more fit. And the Bible is like that in a lot of ways. It helps us in our spiritual life, helps us to grow, to be more like Christ. It trains us up in righteousness. So we see also the result, verse, back to 2 Timothy, if you look at verse 17. It says, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the result of all this, of God's training us, of our instruction, of our teaching, correcting, rebuking, is it, it makes the man of God complete. And in this um, text, the man of God, that is a technical term. It's probably speaking of Timothy or of those who are pastors. So if you want to be a good pastor, a good shepherd, a good teacher, the word of God is the key. Um, this term complete, it could, it could also mean to be competent. And basically, it's giving you everything that you need. So for you guys here and me included who are, are studying, training to be men of God, to be pastors, this book right here is what you need. It makes you competent and complete. Some translations even say perfect and equipped for every good work. So you're equipped for everything, equipped for godly living and for godly ministry. And like I said earlier in Second Peter we have been given everything we need for life and godliness through the word of God. So if we want to be equipped, be equipped for everything, it is through this word and we can be equipped for every good work. So I think this is definitely for those who are teaching and pastors, but I think by implication it also applies to everyone here because the pastors are teaching 
the sheep, the congregation, and they're hearing the word. And hopefully through this, they are coming to become more and more like Christ through this word because they are learning, they're getting instruction, they're being rebuked, they're being corrected and trained. So the word of God is definitely very valuable. It, It makes sense then why we take it so seriously, why we have a church that has spent money to train pastors, to train people to handle this a very thorough way. So Paul goes on in chapter 4. I want to read a little bit of this. He says, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, verse 2, preach the word. So this is pretty uh, significant charge. He's saying this, he's making this charge before God and Jesus Christ, the judge of all living and dead. And at his appearing in kingdom, Shane mentioned earlier from the text how teachers will face stricter judgment. This is a big charge for those of you here in the seminary and those of you who teach. Paul is saying, preach the word. And then verse 2, be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. So the word, this is something that is to be drastic. This is it's not something that is casual. We need to be very serious about the word of God and teaching it to others and convincing and rebuking and exhorting. Well, why? Well, verse 3 says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Definitely we see that today in our, in our culture, with our churches. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. That definitely is a commentary on our day. But you, be watchful in all things. Endure affliction. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So I think this is a, gives us a good reason, a good case for uh, taking the word of God seriously, for being so adamant about doing exposition, about teaching thoroughly, consecutively, letting all of the word of God be preached teaching through books. It's, it's just such a useful way to help fight against error, train up men and women to grow into Christ-likeness. And it makes sense then why this has been the case for so long. John Calvin, when he was preaching, he was a man of exposition. He actually would send countless men out who were trained to exposit the word, and they would go preach the word, and die for it. This, this was a constant thing. These men knew that by learning to handle the word, going out to preach, it was very likely that they would die. But they considered it worth, worth it. And I hope we do too. It's been said the Bible was like a lion. Let it out of the cage. We don't have to help it. We just got to let it out. Let it do its work. We need to unleash God's word one verse at a time. Someone has said. <laughs> so, let's pray. God, 
You're so good. We thank you so much for church. Thank you for the seminary and their priority on training men to handle the word of God. Lord, we know this text does speak to Timothy, a young pastor. It's Paul's passing on of the torch to him, but we know also it applies to us all because we all need to spend time in your word. So help us to do that, to to not take it for granted that we do have copies of the word with us all the time in our hands and our phones. Help us to make it a priority. Thank you again so much for this church. In Jesus' name.